IndieCast is presented by Uproxx's Indie Mixtape. Hello everyone and welcome to IndieCast. On this show we talk about the biggest indie news of the week, we review albums and we hash out trends. In this episode we respond to letters sent by you, the IndieCast listener. My name is Stephen Hyden, and I'm joined by my friend and co-host. He just discovered Kate Bush by watching Stranger Things. Ian <laughs> Cohen. Ian, how are you? Hey, I, I learned about Kate Bush the real way, which was uh, Placebo's cover of Running Up That Hill on the OC. I, that <laughs> So many, like, uh, the Kate Bush uh, discourse this week has, like, led to a lot of placebo discourse, which I am always a fan yeah. of. I think they've covered multiple well, Kate Bush songs. I was going to say, on the Ian Cohen hierarchy <laughs> of IndieCast references, ours is number one, and then placebo is number two. If you can work either a reference to ours or a reference to placebo in, it's going to be a good episode. And this is an organic uh, infusion, because like you said, people were talking about how you know, you discover cool music via uncool venues. You know, like with Kate Bush, people were talking about her because the song Running Up That Hill was included in the new season of Stranger Things. So now you got all these Zoomers out there streaming The Hounds of Love. And I guess, I guess there were some grumpy people rolling their eyes about this saying, oh, you, you know, you should go to a record store and talk to record store clerks and that's how you should discover a record like this. I mean, was that actually happening or is this another one of those sort of like we're inventing grumpy people and reacting against that? I But I heard Kate Bush can't even shoot. Um, yeah, this, uh, maybe it's just a matter of the people I follow on Twitter. But I, I mean, if you really go out there, I guarantee you can find somebody who finds issue with like Kate Bush being on Stranger Things as opposed to, I don't know, the Sex Pistols documentary. But um <laughs> Yeah, I, I, that's not a documentary. That's a uh, uh, it's like a, it's a biopic. Is Machine Gun Kelly in this one? Oh, I wish he were. <laughs> no, he was in the Motley Crue uh, movie, The Dirt, ah. that was on Netflix. He played Tommy Lee. Uh, I don't think there's any famous people mm. uh, in this show, but I don't know. A friend of mine saw it, and he said it was pretty good. He was like the only person I've I've heard say nice things about that show. It, it, for the most part, it's getting clowned. Like all biopics are, it looks pretty cheesy. I know I'm a little tired of late 70s punk, God. you know, like talking about that era. Uh, it feels a little exhausted. You know, getting back to the Kate Bush thing, you know, obviously I think any way you discover a cool song is is great. Yeah. And I know like when I was younger, I would have, you know, I, I'm sure I discovered music in uh, ways that older people might have seemed uncool. I'm curious to get your take on this. I was thinking about Kate Bush, mm-hmm. and I could I could be completely wrong about this, but I remember right, like when I was a teenager growing up in the 80s and 90s and going into my early 20s and reading music writing and starting to do music writing myself, like I never really heard people talking about Kate Bush. Mm-hmm. Like she wasn't someone that was talked about as being one of the most important artists of the 80s. Um, I was looking at Pitchfork's list of the uh, best albums of the 80s that they did in 2002 and the hounds of love was at 92 uh. on that list and then something happened like about 10 years ago where i feel like the kate bush discourse got kicked up a notch 
And I don't know if it was because, you know, there was this new generation of sort of like arty rock singer-songwriters, you know, like St. Vincent and Lord, you know, people that seem to be taking their cues from Kate Bush's 80s records. You know, maybe that explains it, but it just seems like she suddenly became way more important as a touchstone for music critics. Like, I remember seeing the 2018 list that Pitchfork did of the best albums of the 80s, uh, and on that list, The Hounds of Love came in at number four. Wow. Like, I had, that Sade was in the top ten as well, which you know, I'm, I imagine, you know, was not, uh, not the case right. either. But I, I just wanted to say, like, okay, so Hounds of Love, it was ranked right ahead of Remain in Light, it takes an issue of millions to hold us back, you know, the public enemy record, and Daydream Nation, the Sonic Youth record. And I really like the Hounds of Love, but I feel like maybe that's overrating that record a little bit. I mean, it seems like that has a lot to do with maybe just the influence of that album on the current generation of indie artists. I mean, I mean the Does any of this make sense to you? I mean, am I wrong? Because I feel like her stature has grown exponentially in the last decade. I, to me. I absolutely think so. I mean, I think an obvious thing is that um, when that original 80s list published, it was like a lot more, you know, dudes. Right. Oh, of course. And, uh, I mean, I think that's like the most obvious and maybe the most unsatisfying explanation, even though it's probably true. But um, but also, I, I don't think that her influence was oh, no. as profound in 2002 as it was in the 2010s. Like, again, you had this generation of indie artists who were really taking their cues, I think, from Kate Bush. And now you can see her as an artist that is maybe more relevant now than she was, you know, even during her time. I mean, it seems like she's more central in a way now than she was even in the 1980s. Absolutely. I mean, I, I think, and I think most legendary artists have a period of dormancy. Like you mentioned, like the 90s, no one really talking about Kate Bush. Like, I think. I'm pretty sure you've written about this, how Bruce Springsteen had kind of this like low ebb during that time. Um, right. And yeah, I, I think in the early 2000s, um, there was more kind of like twee or dance punk. And I, actually the first time that I got reintroduced to Kate Bush was the Future Heads cover of Hounds of Love, which I don't know how people really feel about that one. To me, that's like the best Kate Bush cover I've heard because it doesn't actually try to replicate Kate Bush. It kind of sounds like barbershop pop punk. Um, and the Future Heads record, that's like a that's like a future uh, IndyCast Hall of Famer. But um, yeah, I, I remember seeing Kate Bush, like a video for the Red Shoes, it, like maybe a couple of times on MTV in the mid-90s, the way that you would sometimes get like these legacy artists trying to reinvent themselves for MTV. Um, Peter Gabriel really mastered that, but like, so, like, and I know that Kate Bush collaborated with Peter Gabriel, but um, yeah, she was just uh, someone who you would see occasionally, like in between Richard Marks and Nirvana and Jackal videos. Yeah, I, I, I feel like I remember that video too, and it was just, oh, this is like a very kind of tasteful, weird version of adult contemporary music. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's how I felt at the time. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, it is interesting just how she has uh, really asserted herself mm -hmm. or how the culture yeah. has asserted her as this pivotal figure. And, you know, Stranger Things gave her another leg up here, which is great. Yeah. Um, I can't believe we've gone this long without mentioning that the 1975 might be be on the verge of kicking off an album cycle. Yes. Yeah. So, wait, what's the deal? Like they po like there's a poster in London with it says July 7th. Yeah, but what year? 
And what does that mean? Is that for a concert? Is that like they're going to drop a single that day? Maddie Healy I returns guess, to Twitter. Right. So we don't know what it means. It's a mysterious poster with a date on it. Yes. But the important thing is that it's like, you know, that Simpsons line. It's like, hey, it's Bart and he's doing stuff like that. That for us is the 1975 because, you know, the 1975 and al- even if a 1975 album dropped like Beyonce, like one, like just it dropped overnight, it would probably be good for at least four episodes worth of discourse. But an album rollout, see, right. they're making it up. They're making it up for what Father John Misty has robbed us. Yeah, I was going to say, I'd be pretty disappointed if the 1975 did the surprise album drop, because I do feel like that's such a waste (laughs) of content for us, because it is about the album rollout as much as the album, for me anyway, with the 1975. And look, I've I've slagged the 1975 on this podcast. I I am on record as not being a fan of their uh, most recent record, uh, whose title escapes me at the moment. What was that one called? Uh, Notes on a uh, Conditional Form. Right, notes on a conditional form. Um, I just blacked out that record, apparently. Uh, but I'm excited. I was excited to hear that there is activity in the 1975 camp mm. because it is all about the content for me. They're a fun band to talk about. I'm glad that they're coming back. My hope is that on July 7th, they release a single and that it's a spoken word track with Anthony Fauci <laughs> talking about COVID. That, or my other hope is that it's a song... Where Maddie Healy talks about going on Tinder at a wet leg concert. Oh yeah, reference to the infamous was... Pine Grove lyric. Yes, yes. Maddie Healy just pulling in all of the relevant contemporary references into the lyrics. He's hashing out trends. He is he is the ultimate hashing out hasher out of trends. He he he's hosting a podcast within the <laughs> songs of the nineteen seventy five. They're about as long uh, as a podcast too, those albums, so well, I, I want to get your take okay. on this. And I, I said this in my review of Notes on a Conditional Form, that the most radical thing in a way that the 1975 could do at this point is to do a 10-song, 35-minute record, where every song was good. But, like, as a fan of the band, would you not like that? Like, do you like the fact that every album is, you know, 22 songs and has, you know, spoken word tracks and and filler and all that stuff? I mean... Would that be disappointing to you if it was just a concise, you know, is this it type record? So it's interesting that you today, while we record, just published a Smashing Pumpkins article because when I re- I remember writing about Machina, Machines of God, uh, how you could potentially reduce that to a 10 song, 40 minute banger that like probably wouldn't be anywhere near as maligned as the actual thing is. But it's like, that's not what you come to the Smashing Pumpkins for. I, I look. I if this if the 1975 makes ten songs as good as as uh, you know, settle down or um, you know, like the sound that would be great. But man, I, the the seven, 1975, like you say, it's about the content, it's about the banter, and I need that. Like I just need the fill, not even the filler, but the songs were like where Maddie Healy and George Daniel were not told no. I mean, if. If they hit with the batting average of Billy Corgan on Melancholy, you know, which is a 28-song album, and I would say, you know, I don't know, there's maybe three or four duds on that album, Mm. like songs that I I automatically skip. I think, for the most part, every song on that album is good, and many of the songs are great. 
I'd also say, like, make a Siamese dream then. You know, like, that's a 10-song record. or uh, I mean, it's probably an hour long. Yeah. I, I, I think it's, like, 13 songs, actually. But still, relatively concise. Or Gish. You know, Gish is relatively concise. You can do that, Maddie Healy. We're, we're just going to totally correlate your career to Smashing Pumpkins right now. Uh, you know, <laughs> I'm just saying, if, if you're going to make Melancholy every time, you should make a Siamese Dream, too. So, like, maybe this can be their Siamese Dream. This new record. Yeah, I, I, I'd be down for that. I'd be down for, is this it? I'd be down for uh, their Sandinista. I mean, everything is really on the table with the 1975. Um, and I just hope they do the 1975. Like, I don't want them to make the, you know, the Ernest Singer songwriter Rick Rubin album. I don't <laughs> want them to uh, go pure... Although I really do like their electronics, like instrumentals, like I think they're really good at that. But um, yeah, I, well, I was going to ask you, like in in the in this fan base, what what's the feeling on notes on a conditional form? I mean, do you feel like because that record was polarizing critically, but do you feel like fans are on board with that record, or are fans also torn? I cannot speak for the 1975 fan base. <laughs> like I I. You're like the Jen Psaki of the <laughs> yeah. 1975 fan base. I'm looking to you to be the press secretary you're, you're, for for these people. Yeah, I guess like maybe for like, you know, 42-year-old music critics I might be. But like the 1975 fan base cannot be spoken for with one person. Like they are a wild, wild bunch. It is, it's like a combination of like modern pop Stan Army, but also like the deep, deep nerdiness of like smashing pumpkins like in the 90s where like they were like the first band of that time to like really have like you know like really in-depth tab books and like collections of bootlegs i think they were a little ahead of their time on that regard so yeah then i again like and whenever i tweet like anything about the 1975 it somehow goes viral so yeah they got a great fan yeah, base. great I fan mean, base and uh so yeah really hoping for a long album cycle Give us give us three or four months. If we can talk about that. This is like the sports talk equivalent of Aaron Rodgers. You know, Aaron <laughs> Rodgers last year. It's like Colin Cowherd was just licking his chops over anything Aaron Rodgers did because it was just great content. And Maddie Healy is like the indie rock Aaron Rodgers at this yeah. point. So I'm I'm very excited for what might happen there. Um we gotta talk about new songs by old bands <laughs> that came out this week there's a new single from phoenix yes. and a new single uh from the yeah yeah yes um just again more comebacks from aughts era indie this year mm. you know they're all coming back animal collective was back this year now we've got phoenix we've got yeah yeah yes uh, great for our 36 to 44 year old listeners out there, which I think is all of our That's listeners. our bread and butter right there. New, That's our bread and that, New songs by old bands could easily be our like tagline. <laughs> uh, let's take them one by one. How, how, how do you feel about this Phoenix single? Uh, it's called Alpha Zulu. Zulu. Hmm. Uh, and I don't know if there was an album announced with this. I think it was just a standalone song, but presumably there's a whole album coming. Yeah, it would be their first in five years. Um, yeah. And I think that's kind of what bands do more often nowadays. They release, like, uh, one single or, like, two singles, and then, like, a month or so later, they announce the actual album. And yeah. I don't think we'd be talking about the, a new Phoenix song on this uh, episode if it wasn't, like, it is 
I, I'm like just so impressed that they made a song this bad. Like Phoenix to me is <laughs> their quality control. Like even if I don't like like their albums or and I like all their albums. I don't think any of them really like is a banger all the way through with the possible exception of it's never been like that. But you know, like you hear a Phoenix song and it's going to be well constructed. It's not going to make any weird tangents. But this one, wow, it's got, it, it kind of quotes Busta Rhymes. Um, yeah. in the chorus and it sound it's sung a little bit like 2022 Isaac Brock. There's some weird vocal affectations going on in the song that again, to your point, you don't really associate with a band like Phoenix. They're a very smooth operation. There's something almost, you know, animatronic about Phoenix to me, which is why, you know, there's a lot of Phoenix songs I like, mm-hmm. especially, you know, those two late aughts albums. It's never been like that in Wolfgang Amadeus uh, Phoenix. Lots of good songs on those records, but they're also like a faceless band to me. You know, like I don't really care. Like, do, have you ever spent any time wondering like what Thomas Mars does outside of the Absolutely, band? Absolutely, because that guy lives a pretty <laughs> charmed life. That's true. I guess he's he's chilling with Sofia Coppola. Yeah, just making uh, tons of sync money. Like I think Wolfgang Amadeus oh, yeah. Phoenix was more or less the. 2009 2010 version of Moby's play. I mean, you could just not escape 1901 right. or Listomania. Yeah, like there's a song on that last uh, on that recent Harry Styles record called Music for a Sushi Restaurant, and I think every song by Phoenix could be described as music for a sushi <laughs> restaurant. Like in a good yeah. way, like they're very good at that. But yeah, this this song, I don't know. I don't hate it as much as you do. Like you 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 uh you messaged me <laughs> last night and you're like you got to listen to this Phoenix song cuz we got to talk about this on the show like trust me and making it you know i don't know if you said this outright but you made it pretty clear that you thought this song was a stinker <laughs> i don't hate it as much as you do but i am with you in that it doesn't have the that sort of sleek consistency that you expect from this band which in a way you could make an argument makes it maybe more interesting than a lot of their stuff because like you said we probably wouldn't be talking about it if it was just like another nice phoenix single um but yeah it's odd it's odd to juxtapose Phoenix and Busta Rhymes. Yeah. I don't know if that really works. <laughs> yeah. I, I, like, I think at this point, and I think this is also something at a point you're getting to, is that, like, a really awful, like, a fucking terrible Phoenix album would be so much more valuable to us as content uh, farmers than, like, a pretty good Phoenix album, like the last one, or Bankrupt before that. So, again, with yeah. us, like the 1975, it's... It's not about the music, man. It's about the content. Yeah, it, it, it's too bad that we're just purely mercenary now. <laughs> you know, it's not even about being music fans. We're just looking at it, you know, strictly for what we can pull from it uh, for this podcast. Just taking over our lives in some way. Um, going over to the AIS song, it's called Spitting on the Edge of the World. Mm-hmm. Or Spitting Off the Edge of the World. And this is another example. I don't... Have they announced their album? I don't... I think they did. I think they did. I think they did. And this is the first single from it. Yeah, it's called Cool It Down. It's out September 30th. Okay, Cool It Down is the name of the name of the album. Um I like this song a lot. It, it it's it sounds more to me like a Karen O single, like a solo track than it does a band track. It doesn't really sound like that sort of post-punk gnarled energy that you expect from the Yeah Yeah Yeahs. Do I expect that from them anymore, though? 
Well, that's true. I got, but it, it doesn't sound like a band. It sounds like Karen O and like this sort of glacial synth pop backing, which is really cool. I, again, I like the song, but uh, yeah, I don't know. I'm, I'm curious if this is like reflective of what the whole album is going to be like. I'd be down for that. I mean, it, uh, we talked a little bit about Mosquito. Uh, that was the one, right? In 2013, something like that. I could be wrong. Yeah, yeah I, I like this new song. I think it does really well, like um, on that kind of like laser light slow motion in like 2012-ish indie pop. I think if they released this song when Mosquito came out, they we might be more excited for a Yeah Yeah Yeah's album than we are right now. But yeah, I think our ex- my, my expectations have been ratcheted to the point where it's like, you know what? If this song is good, then it's kind of great. So good for them. Yeah, it, it, it reminded me a little of that uh, recent Sky uh, Ferreira song uh, that like Pitchfork totally butchered. <laughs> like their review, like did you read the review of that? St- I did. I thought it was a little uh, too harsh. I, I I don't think it's a great song, but I, they really took it to the woodshed yeah. uh, in that review. And we, we could, you know what? Like I've been there. Uh, I've written that review where it's like a for- a band we formerly love, and you know what? It's it's just part of the process. I guarantee the person who wrote that is like, you know, super young. And I, I wonder if they heard from the Sky Ferreira fan army. But you know what? That is that is part of the game. Yeah, you got to earn your stripes. You got to, you know, and it, it it is like going to war because, you know, the, the editors are the generals. <laughs> and they're like, all right, you got to go out, you know. We are all cannon fodder. We're storming the beaches of Normandy, like in Saving Private Ryan and the people in the front. They're all going to get shot in the head, and then, like, the next row will be able to go on the beach. And if you're, like, the junior staffer, you know, you're on the front row going into Normandy. So it's okay. We all get shot in the head in the music critic community. You got to get shot in the head every now and then uh, if if you want to earn your stripes. You all need PTSD from, like, a review (laughs) you wrote. Like, I get haunted by my Kid Cudi review. Yeah. Do you still get emails about that? Absolutely. Like, and I'm not, e- I'm not even being like facetious about that. Like I got one like last week and it more often than not, it's, oh, from, like, a, it's from like a teacher. Like, okay. like, a, like a t- I'm not kidding. Like a 10th grade teacher, because it'll have their um, signature at the bottom. It'll say like such and such K to 12. And yeah. So I imagine that, oh, man. Um, yeah, day, they're teaching like day and night as like a poetic device in their class. They're like the teacher turning the chair around. It's like, hey, kids, you know who else like, you know, doing the whole thing about like Shakespeare was the first rapper, right. but like Kid Cudi <laughs> was the new Shakespeare. Right. You know, um, I just like to imagine this teacher being like, okay, everyone, uh, I'm going to need you to read silently at your desk for 15 minutes. And then the teacher goes to his laptop and he's just writing hate mail to Ian Cohen while his class is, you know, doing like independent study you know he's like he needed to carve out some time in the day to email you from his work account to complain about like a ten, like how old is that review is that 10 years it is I, it would be like older than 10 years it might be from 2010 or 11 but most of the time i would say nine times out of 10 whenever i get hate mail it's stuff i wake up to so that means they 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 do that stuff completely off the clock oh my god well I think you should bring in some of these emails and we can read them on the show. They're we bad. Have a, They're like we really have, mean. Can like, Do you think that'd be all right? Can we do like a mailbag where it's just like your Kid Cudi uh, hate mail? You know what? I'm going to 
I've, I've deleted most of my emails prior to 2019 because that like, okay. otherwise I'd have, but I could probably find some recent ones. Oh yeah. Like even this, even this one from the 10th grade teacher, I think, I think our listeners would enjoy that on the show. That'd be a good mailbag. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about that. We'll talk about that off, off mic, but a kid cutty mailbag, I think would be good. Uh, we have an all mailbag episode here. So the meat is the mailbag. We've got four letters here to read. Uh, I just want to say it's always great to hear from our listeners. Thank you for writing in. You can hit us up at IndieCastMailbag at gmail.com. Uh, we always need more messages from you to talk about and to generate content. Yeah, this is a, it's a real impossible burger of an episode where like the presumptive filler is the actual meat. Yes, exactly. Uh, do you want to read our first uh, email? I do, as a matter of fact. So uh, this one is from Nate in Chicago. Uh, All right. He loved last week's episode on the 10th anniversary of Celebration Rock, especially when Ian, that being me, talked about the experience of driving to the album. I remember being in a low place mentally and emotionally years ago, and this album being the soundtrack in my car when things started looking up. It will forever have a special place in my heart because of that. Is there a particular album that you remember having in your car that will always evoke fond memories? Ian, you can't say clarity. Just kidding. Thanks, guys. Nate from uh, Chicago. Well, I mean, you're just daring Ian now to talk about clarity for a half hour. The Zed album, the not the Jimmy Eat World one. <laughs> exactly. Um yeah, I mean, I, there's so many albums that I associate with fond memories of driving in the car. I mean, and I mean, you touched on this a lot last week, but you know, for me too, uh, it's my favorite place to listen to music. You know, in the car, and it's one reason, one of many reasons why I could never live in a place like New York City, where it's hard to have a car. You, you know, you can't just hop in the car and go drive out in like a wide open space somewhere and listen to records. Um, that's such a big part of my life. I, I, it would make me sad not to have that experience. The first thing I thought of when he asked, like, is there a particular album associated with driving? I thought about this drive I took in college where I went from, where I went to college, which is Eau Claire, Wisconsin, on the west side of the state, home of Justin Vernon. And uh, I was going to Appleton. Actually, I think I was going from Appleton, my hometown, to Eau Claire. And I listened to the Cheap Trick album at Budokan <laughs> six times in a row. Six times in a row. I've never done that with any other album. But I loved it so much. And I think I had just started getting into it. I was like 18 or 19 years old. I just listened to it over and over again. It's a live record. One of the greatest live records of all time. Uh, and it's just wonderful uh, roll down your windows in the summertime music. Um, I was also going to say that Jam band music is great in the car. And again, I think this is because I live in kind of like a rural part of the country. Like you go from the city and you're driving in the country a lot as soon as you leave, you know, the city limits. So it's really good for that. I remember driving through a thunderstorm, a very intense thunderstorm that looked like it might turn into a tornado at any moment. About five or six years ago, and I was listening to the tweezer from Fish's Alive One. Which is like a half hour long, and very sort of evil sounding, very, gets way out there. Type 2 jamming. Lots of that in that song. For the jam heads out there, you know what I'm talking about, type 2 jamming. I don't. Uh, well, look it up. I'm, I'm speaking directly to my jam fan people out there. Type 2 jamming. Type 2 jamming is basically when you totally abandon the song. 
And like, because type one jamming is when you're improvising over uh, an established chord progression. Type two is when you totally abandon that. And it's just like, you know, noise, essentially very ambient type uh, exploration of, of sonic worlds. Uh, anyway, those are two things that came to mind for me. What about for you? Like, are you going to talk about clarity? You I'm know? absolutely going to talk about clarity. First <laughs> off, I, I'm Googling type two jam. And the first two things that come up are type two jam fish and type two diabetes journal of American, uh, of the American medical association review. Yeah. So I'm not, um, I'm not a fan of type two diabetes, not endorsing no. that at all. Type two jamming though. I am a fan of. So clarity, like, and I and I did Google this while you were talking. Uh, it is three. It's about three some odd hours from Appleton to Eau Claire, um, and clarity is about an hour long. And that is the drive from Richmond, Virginia, to Charlottesville, Virginia, when I was in college. That's what we're just gonna do. We're just gonna talk about when we were in college. But um, that I listened to clarity after going to like the first wedding of like a friend of mine. Like they were like 22 and this was like a couple of weeks after 9-11. So there was just like a lot of strange emotions in the air. Nothing better than to listen to clarity, especially if like you're on, if you're alone in the car. And um, yeah, that was like my first like, wow, adulthood. This is like overwhelming. That's what clarity is to me. Also, if we're going to talk about Jimmy Eat World, Bleed American. The first time I listened to that album, I got a speeding ticket like 10 minutes in. So I think that is the difference between Jimmy World's Clarity and uh, Bleed American. But as cliched as it is, um, Modest Mouse is really the uh, go-to for long car rides. Because, yes, we're showing our age here. But also, they're a rare band for whom travel is like an actual subject matter of their music. So it it's sprawling, but like it has these moments of like repetition, similar to driving through I don't know any part of like the non-urban uh, part of the country, and the points of like really like loud cacophonous rock. So it 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 mirrors the actual um, experience of driving across the country. And for me, that was the album we listened to when uh, we, for some reason, a friend of mine and I we, the, we drove at night from Charlottesville to Charleston, South Carolina. Uh, he was driving. I was uh, not in a sober state of mind. And that's when you really listen to, need to listen to the moon in Antarctica. Oh, moon in Antarctica. Like for me, it'd be Lonesome Crowded West would be the the driving album. But yeah, great call on Modest Mouse. You know, Trucker's Atlas. Oh, yeah. That's a song I could listen to on repeat if I was driving. And it's about 10 minutes long. So if I was doing the drive from Appleton to Eau Claire, what would that be? It'd be like, you listen to that song 18 times in a row, and it would get you from one place to another. I think I could listen to that song 18 times in a row. Maybe I'll actually do that sometime. Um, I would like that you looked at the distance there, too, because it made me realize that at Budokan is a half hour long. I listened to it six times in a row, so that's 180 minutes. So that would be, that would cover the three-hour drive. So that yes. totally works. Okay, so let's get to our second letter. This comes from Brendan in Burbank, California. Uh, I was in Burbank not too long ago. I wonder if I saw Brendan hanging out there <laughs> among all the uh, the tourists and the Universal Studio uh, traffic there. Uh, it says, hello, Stephen Ian. Big fan of the podcast. Challenging the LA is an IndieCast country narrative. Have we said that? I probably said that. I lived in LA for 10 years, so it's kind of yeah. self-deprecating. But right. I'll take yeah. it. 
We, we welcome. I love LA. I love visiting LA. Uh, was inspired to write by your recent Celebration Rock anniversary episode. I too loved that Japan Droids album in 2012, so I eagerly made plans to see them live when they came around in spring of 2013. I caught them at the new uh, parish in Oakland on a bill with another fave band from that time, Cloud Nothings. I remember that tour. Uh, I was super excited for the show and then totally let down. I know you spoke of their inconsistent live shows, Stephen, but this concert was a bummer. And it lowered the band in my esteem for quite a while afterwards. Has this ever happened to you? Where a live performance lowered in any way or it changed your opinion of a band that you loved on record? Uh, side note, I'm even more confounded by Ian's hate of the Hold Steady after hearing him gush about Japan droids. Join the club, Brendan. <laughs> this is an ongoing conversation between Ian and I that has gone on for a decade or more. Uh, but we'll put that one aside. We don't want to get sidetracked with that. Brendan's asking, have you ever seen a band live that you loved, but then they sucked live and it made you like the band less? So, you know, as we're prone to do here on IndieCast, I got to mention Local H, specifically All the Kids Are Right. (laughs) This is a great song. It's like from a doomed album, an IndieCast Hall of Famer, if there ever was one, about how they played this show after they got a whole bunch of online hype and, um, and, and like, oh, it turns out they sucked live and all the kids turned on them. And I mean, this song came out in like 1998. So this was at least 10 years before like Pitchfork or what have you were like catapulting these buzz bands onto stages. They had absolutely no right to play. I'm talking about, you know, the waves meltdown or clap your hands, say, yeah. And I, I think that was kind of the way I would evaluate live shows uh, in the past where it's like, can they pull off what they did on the record? That's super important to me. Like, I don't want to feel like I was being lied to by this album, but you know, in the same way that when we talk about bands or albums nowadays, we're real. Most of the people are just like kind of talking past the music and like talking about the fan base, like what it's like to be amongst people who like that music. I think that's also the case with seeing music live where what is on stage is almost like tangential to the experience of like, are people talking during this show? Like, am I annoyed by the audience? And um, a live experience that kind of merged those two things recently, uh, our friend Chris DeVille wrote about this at Stereo Gum, but watching Phoebe Bridgers headline Pitchfork Festival, like it was a good choice in 2021. Like certainly a level of fame to warrant it, but her music was like drowned out by like Yeji uh, on the other stage, a lot of bass, like the music didn't scale up. Um, so, you know, there was a discrepancy between like her level of fame and like that, uh, the music itself, but more than anything, and I've heard this be like a real thing at Phoebe Bridger's show is that people talk during her show or like they try to banter with her like, oh, I like maybe if like I, I can be as clever as Phoebe Bridgers on stage. Um, yeah, I just remember like the times I've seen her just being super annoyed to the point where I can't really enjoy the show. And I think that's become we talked about this in a previous episode about like how this is becoming more and more prominent, uh, you know, post covid uh, where like I saw it at a Perfume Genius show, people just talking throughout the entire set. It happened at a Manchester Orchestra show. I don't know if like there's any specific band where I've had a lowered opinion, but maybe it's just like my live music in general. Like, so yeah, live music kind of overrated now. <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, I don't think live music is overrated, but I will say that um, my feelings about indie bands, seeing them live have, 
has really shifted over time. Like I used to have this stance, which I guess is kind of like a rockist stance that if I liked a band on record, I had to see them live to confirm that I liked them. And it was like the live music tests. Like if they can bring it live, then they're actually like a really good band or a good artist. And you know, about five, six years ago, I stopped thinking that way because there were so many indie bands that I went to see live that I just thought were not any good on stage. And that period, it coincided with the rise of, like, I guess what we'll call the band camp era, where there were a bunch of artists that came to prominence first because they were popular on band camp. And then they had to become bands in order to tour. And it was almost like they had to tour for a while to come into their own as performers. You know, like that old thing about how, you know, bands, they tour for several years, they play the clubs and then they get signed and then they put out a record. And when they are in the spotlight, you know, they, they've had the, the, the experience on stage to be really good. You know, like when they actually are seen by a lot of people and it just seemed like there was this era and maybe we're still in it where there were like a lot of artists who, if you saw them the first time, they'd be bad. And then you see them the second time they'd be like, okay. And then maybe by the fourth or fifth time they would be like really good. Like I would say car seat headrest is the example I think of when I say that. I mean, I saw them several times around the time of teens of denial, like that era. And, uh, they just got better each time I saw them. But if I had decided to stop after that first time, I just would have thought they were a shitty live band. Um, I don't know. I don't know how you feel about this, but like it has made me more selective. Like when I go out to shows now, because there are certain artists who I, I like them on record, but I can just tell that this won't be good live. And Phoebe Bridgers, Phoebe's probably an example of that because I like her records a lot, but you know, thinking of seeing her play those songs at a festival like Pitchfork, it does not seem at all appealing to me. It's just not the right context for what she's doing. Um, so I don't know. I I mean, there's still like lots of great live bands out there, obviously. But I just think in the indie world, especially with young bands, you know, they're really using like their early tours to get better. Like they're not good right away. So it can be like a pretty frustrating experience to go to these shows and just kind of be bored out of your mind. Yeah. I mean, I feel like that happens a lot in the indie world. It absolutely does. with, And especially, like, with what you mentioned, the band camp era, the first thing that comes to mind is Alex G., like, a notoriously erratic uh, live experience. And, you know, I've I, I seen bands that I really like and have become solid live, like Soccer Mommy or JSOM, for example. Like, these, these bands where it's like, oh, shit, we now got to be – we got to like be on tour and I got to get a band and it's, and it looks like four or five people who like just met each other like <laughs> right. a, a month ago. But like once they become permanent members of the band and they start appearing in the videos, like I think with the most recent soccer mommy single, uh, you know, it becomes a better experience. And it's like, you know, like I, and that's the thing, like I don't blame these artists for not being able to bring it, you know, to replicate their bedroom uh, pop record on stage. And more to the point, like, I'm 40 something years old. I don't need the, I don't need to like go and see just like, you know, the 500 some odd people in San Diego who happen to like JSOM as much as I do. Uh, you know, like I don't need that sense of confirmation the way I used to. Yeah. Yeah. And that's definitely like, like the age 
definitely influences that. And, and to your point about being annoyed by an audience, that's probably an age thing too. You know, like when you just see people talking or with Phoebe Bridgers, they're trying to engage her in banter. I think that really speaks to the gap between her music and her online persona where she's like a really, really funny person online, but like her songs aren't, I mean, her songs have humor in them, but uh, you know, the, the, the music is more somber than what her persona is. So I think that maybe creates some dissonance at her shows a little bit because you get these wisecracking people like, oh, be funny like you are on Twitter. And it's like, well, no, this isn't what... We're not on Twitter right now. We're in real life. <laughs> you know, I think people... Twitter is real life. I yeah, think I guess so. I, I think that's like another theme of IndieCast, you know, like uh, new music by old bands and Twitter actually is real life. Absolutely. Uh, you you want to read our next letter? I love this next question. Yeah, I'm really glad that someone asked about this. So this is from Corey in Connecticut. Um, and they've... Uh, <laughs> They've come up with countless emails to you guys in my head. And of all of them, this is possibly the least necessary. But after Steve's column, I couldn't resist. Making a difference out there, Steve. Yes. In short, Harry Styles, same as it was, has the drum track from The Strokes, hard to explain. And it also has the bloopy synth from Steve's personal favorite song, New Light by John Mayer. Great song. It's all I can think of. It's all I can think of when I hear the song. Not since Kelly Clarkson, Since You've Been Gone, have I heard such patchwork of indie ripoffs. Since you've been gone, it's literally the end has no end by the strokes. I also say it's got like uh, the city by dismemberment plan in there on the chorus, but neither here. I like that that Corey is implying that John Mayer is indie rock (laughs) or the strokes. (laughs) Yeah, but I but I know what you mean, Corey. I know what you mean. In question form, whether or not you agree with my specific observations, what are some examples of popular music that have brazenly borrowed from any type of indie music that you have noticed and is accepted and enjoyed by the general public? What are the best examples of individual songs or long-term trends? Uh, keep talking about the biggest indie news of the week, reviewing albums and hashing out trends in the free world, Corey in Connecticut. Thank you, Corey. Uh, that's, that is a good question. Um, the example that came to mind for me right away when I saw this letter is really like the, not even the recent work of Taylor Swift, like the bulk of her career after she crossed over from being a country star. Um, I still think with the album 1989, I felt this at the time and I, and I still feel this way, that that was her reacting to what was going on in indie music in 2013. You know, 1989 came out in 2014. Like to me still, it sounds like her version of like a Haim record, you know, like indie music at that time was very much starting to look back to the 1980s and being influenced by that. And I think Taylor, you know, absorb that into her own music and she didn't rip it off necessarily there's no songs on her record that sound like a specific indie song it's more about like jacking a vibe and i think that more than anything is what pop has been doing for the past decade or so like where indie music really is like the farm system for pop music as opposed to being this like oppositional culture like the way it was really before you know the 2010s um I was also thinking too about the weekend, doing that in reverse in a way because like you look at the early part of his career, you know the like the, the mixtapes he put out in the uh, early part of the 2010s, um, which proved to be really influential on mainstream music, uh, obviously as the decade unfolded. But then he himself became a superstar when he started glomming on to, you know, the most popular music of the 1980s, you know, like with by the middle of the decade. So he kind of did it, he kind of influenced pop music and then he let himself be absorbed by pop music and he started making 
very big time records in that way. So those are the examples that came to mind for me. What about for you? I mean, do you feel like there's examples of like specific songs being ripped off or is it more of just like absorbing like influences from the indie world? I had such a hard time originally answering this question. And, you know, part of it is because I don't engage with pop music as much as I did, you know, in the Since You've Been Gone days. Or, and, and, you know, mentioning 1989 as kind of a turning point in history. I think that, in a way, the, the, the distance between indie and pop music has closed to the point where, you know, I, I can imagine many pop songs that could be ripping off Tame Impala or The National or, you know, say, One O Tricks Point Never or The War on Drugs. But more often than not, they just get Kevin Parker in the studio. They just get, like, Aaron Dessner to produce the record or they get, uh, you know, Daniel Lopatin to do it as well. Um, and I think Lemonade uh, by Beyonce was, like, a very prominent example of that where, you know, Father John Misty, Ezra Koenig, um, they were just all brought into the fold. Um, but I think what really hit me here is that I think Corey is kind of asking the question in reverse because I can't think of too many pop artists who are like ripping off indie bands in the current day, at least not ones that we talk about here. But like the opposite is happening all the fucking time, which is to say that like so many indie artists are ripping off pop acts and that I see clear as day. I've seen so many Bands, particularly in like the, I don't know, like whatever you want to call DIY punk emo sphere, uh, you know, change course and, you know, hey, we decided like we listened to Taylor Swift in the van and we don't want to hide that anymore. So therefore you see like them pivoting to synths. They like try to sound like Carly Rae Jepsen or Robin or The Weeknd. And, you know, in the same way that we talked about Saving Private Ryan, it's like, you know, my personal... You know, my personal war is seeing so many fallen comrades to the, uh, to like taking the canon of poptimism. That's kind of a mixed metaphor, but, um, <laughs> yeah, like I, I would love to see, like, I don't even know what sort of indie artists, like a pop band could rip off nowadays. Like, I don't know if any indie artist is like big enough to rip off. I mean, you could talk about like maybe like Japanese breakfast or what have you, but like, that to me is an example, and I think a good example, like a positive example of a of an indie artist who is taking on like pop music. You know what I yeah, mean? Yeah, yeah. I mean, like you said, I think instead of ripping things off, you you just bring the person in. So, yeah, like again, going back to Taylor Swift. Oh, I like the National. I'm going to bring in Aaron Desner, and I'm going to make a record that kind of sounds like the last couple National records. Or I'm going to bring in Justin Vernon, and we're going to do a duet. It's going to have kind of a Bonnie Bear vibe because he's on the song. Um, the stigma that used to exist about pop music and how if you were in the indie world, you couldn't participate in the pop world or, or else you're a sellout. I mean, that's so ancient now that calling it a ripoff doesn't even seem like the right word for it. I mean... And going back to the Harry Styles song, I mean, I really think you know, it's not so much an indie ripoff. To me, it's like ripping off the weekend's ripoff of Take On Me. You know, it's like his mm. version of Blinding Lights to me, more than, you know, the songs that he was mentioning. So I I don't know. It Again, like pop music has just absorbed like the rest of the music world. Uh, we're just like kind of living in 
in you know, a world ruled by Taylor Swift in The weekend and Harry Styles at this point. Um, all right, let's get to our last letter. This comes from Juan in Mexico City. He has written us before. Oh. And we've read his – so he's like a two-timer. I don't know if we're going to have like a you – know, like SNL has like the five-timers club. <laughs> Maybe we should have like the, the five-timers club for our mailbag. Is this the first double dipper? It might be. It might be. Juan, congratulations. Yeah, let's get our intern on this. We need to keep track of this sort of stuff. Yes. Well, in the meantime, Juan asks, what's your guys' take on ambient music? I'm probably biased on this because I've had anxiety problems since I was a kid, so this type of music helps me a lot sometimes, but I also think it could be very emotional. Also, what do you think about ambient tracks on non-ambient albums like Tree Fingers on Kid A or The Haunting Idol from Lost in the Dream by The War on Drugs? I feel like ambient music can be seen as just background music, but for me, there's a wide array of emotions it can evoke. So how do we feel about this kind of music, Ian? Uh, great question. Uh, and yeah, I love the fact that we're talking about, um, like, I love when people ask us to discuss like genres of music that we don't typically hear. Um, I think the, there's like an irony of ambient music and I don't know if I should pronounce it ambient or ambient. Um, yeah, but, I don't know. I was but, feeling unsure as I was reading that. <laughs> I'm sure I'm going to get like a pissed off letter from like an Apex twin fan. Yeah. The Eno Stan army is out there. Um, <laughs> I, Ambient, I don't even know how I pronounce it, but let's, I'm just going to go with ambient from here on out. Ambient music is like, if I were to, like the one kind of music that I could play in the common area of work that people would ask me to shut it off immediately. Like the one thing that is supposed to be used for, because, um, you know, at my job where I'm around like, you know, real people with, you know, you know, pretty uh, normal tastes, uh, it's either the Spotify feel good indie playlist or like Taylor Swift. Like that is my workplace's version of ambient music. But, and the, I put on groupers dragging a dead deer up a hill one day while I was in my office. And that was like the one time people were like, please turn this off. This shit makes me want to, this shit makes me feel like I want to die. Um, <laughs> I, I like that. Um, I like that Juan brought up tree fingers and the haunting idol. Like, by and large, ambient tracks on non-ambient albums, that just shows me that they really are going for it. It's like, you're, uh, and the 1975, another example of that. I think they had a song called Streaming on the last album. Um, that just shows they're really swinging for the fences, that they're really trying to make an epic statement. Um, stuff like a early Aphex Twin, I love that as well, but like, I think this gets into definitional aspects of ambient music, because I, I think about like, you know, selected ambient works and there's like drums on that. And it's like, if there are drums, can that be, uh, ambient music? I mean, same with like emeralds, uh, their music has no drums as far as I know, but it's like pretty loud still. Um, and I guess the mystery that always fascinates me about ambient music, it's like, I want to hear a bad ambient album. Like who is like the Greta Van Fleet or like the Jack Harlow of ambient? Like I want to find like the person who reviews all like Philip Sherburn. I got to holler at that dude to pitchfork. Like tell me who is like making like some basic like clown shit in the ambient world. Yeah, that's a that's one thing I'm curious about too because like I'm gonna say ambient too. I'm just gonna okay. follow your lead. I'm gonna say both because then I'll I'll, I'll be a little bit wrong and a little bit right instead of all wrong or all right with the pronunciation here, but, but obviously, you know, I'm a fan of like the OGs of the genre, you know, love Brian Eno, 
love his collaborations with with Cluster. Uh, you know, Tangerine Dream is awesome. There's the late Klaus Scholze, who recently passed away, passed away earlier this year. All the Germans, love the Germans <laughs> from the 70s, are great. And then you, know, you get into the 90s, you got like uh, Apex Twin, and you've got uh, Boards of Canada, that kind of stuff. That's all That's all cool. But yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm curious like how fans of the genre feel when there's a song like Tree Fingers on Kid A. Do they just roll their eyes at that? Is that like the nickelback of their genre? You know, like these rock guys who are dabbling in our world. Like, do they just feel like that's obvious or like overly derivative of, you know, what you would have heard on uh, Side 2 of Low, you know, the David Bowie record? Um, because they, I have no perspective on that at all. I mean, I feel like when rock bands put an ambient track on their record, it is, like you said, a uh, a hint to the audience that this is going to be an epic record, you know, that, that we are taking you deep in, inside the mind of your own consciousness and this is going to be part of like the journey of it, you know? Um, but I, I, I just wonder like how that reads to someone who listens to this kind of music all the time. If, if it just feels like, you know, musical tourism, maybe, uh, like when, when rock bands do it, I do think like, I, I like that the, uh, that Juan brought up the war on drugs because that's an element of their music that has been excised pretty much from their records where, you know, like on Slave Ambient, Slave Ambient, there you go, another ambient reference, uh, and uh, Lost in the Dream, there were these like more kind of like segue tracks that would go on for a while that gave those records a real vibe, uh, kind of like a kind of like a spooky vibe that like has been excised in favor of just like more straightforward rock anthems on the last couple records. It's kind of made them more of like a conventional rock band than they were early on. Um, great car record. I listened to the Slave Ambient the other day uh, during yeah. Memorial Day. It is a great car record. And I'll say, too, that um, I like the midsection of that 1975 record. I like it when you sleep, yada, yada, yada. Isn't there like sort of like an ambient part in the middle, like where it, it gets kind of <laughs> spacey for about 10 minutes? The name of that song is Please Be Naked. Uh, but yes, that is like kind of a notorious dip. Um, it's also like on uh, Deer Hunter's Micro Castle. That's another example of like an like where the middle of the album they really test you and they put a couple of like ambient tracks in there. I think Bradford Cox was good at that. Like an example of like a rock musician who I think did something. It, again, I could be totally full of shit when I say this, but it did <laughs> it did seem like he was a little little bit more thoughtful working in that arena than maybe other rock musicians. You know, like where it does because it does feel like sometimes like the ambient track on a rock record does feel like an interstitial song that people don't really even consider a full-fledged song. I mean, that's definitely the case with Tree Fingers, I think. Yeah. People treat that as an afterthought on Kid A, even though I don't think it should be. I mean, I like that track as like a mood setter in the middle of the record. But, you know, they t those tracks tend to be kind of looked at almost as like the rap skit of like a rock record. Yeah, like, tree, you know? tree Fingers was like a notorious... Um, a notorious victim of like Napster downloading because people were right. like, fuck, I waited 25 minutes to download this song with no words on it. Fuck out of here. Like, right. A lot of people would have their burnt copy of Kid A prior to it being released. And it's like, yep, tree fingers, that shit can go.
All right, we've now reached the part of our episode that we call Recommendation Corner, where Ian and I talk about something that we're into this week. Ian, why don't you go first? All right, so again, very true to form. Uh, on Wednesday, Algernon Codwell-Lauder uh, announced their reunion tour, and I'm stoked about this because, you know, I can ask my wife, hey, sweetie, do you want to see the band Algernon Codwell-Lauder in uh, L.A. or Santa Ana? And then she can use that name to her friends. But this is like a huge deal. Uh, you know, in the emo world, and I think maybe filtering into the indie world as well. But uh, their debut album, 2008, Some Kind of Cadwell Otter, is basically the cabin jazz of the emo revival. It's like the uh, gold standard for everything that came before it, ripped off by tons of bands. They all went on to do a lot of interesting things. Joe Reinhardt, the guitarist, went on to join Hopalong. He produced uh, Joyce Manor's Never Hung Over Again, Modern Baseball's Holy Ghost. Um, and they broke up in 2012. They're getting back together for a fall tour and they're playing like shockingly big rooms. Like I know there's a lot of excitement for this band, but how this plays out in brick and mortar spaces will be interesting. But yeah, so I mean, they're playing like a thousand plus cap rooms in LA and Chicago, multiple dates in Portland. And, um, you know, this is recommendation corner because like, please listen to their album. Some kind of Cadwell Otter is the emo one. Parrot Flies is a little more jammy. I think Steve might like Cruisin', which is the last song on Parrot Flies. They sound a little more like pavement sort of jammy, but um, mm. I'm very interested to see how this plays out compared to the Sunny Day Real Estate tour that got announced. Um, Algernon, they're super stoked to be together. It's every original member from the band, like everyone. So you're going to get two drummers and like two guitarists. Whereas Sunny Day Real Estate, like seeing like it took a lot more elbow work to get happening like and they're not going to have Nate Mendel as well. So, yeah, I'm just interested to see how the crowd reaction is for these compared to Sunny Day Real Estate. I'm going to go to both. I'm super excited for both and yeah, emo fans, we are eating in the fall of 2022. Can I just say that I was impressed every time you landed the pronunciation of that band name. Like you landed <laughs> every single one. I don't know if you were doing, you know, tongue exercises before the episode because it just seems like a hard name to land i'm not even going to say the whole name i just want to say that that's a very prog rock name i, I and we've we've talked about this in previous episodes there's definitely crossover between the emo world and the prog world i mean are they proggy at all um there's a the, accidentally proggy it's not like they have like all these like weird time signatures in the way like yes do but it's yeah I, not proggy a little more mathy you know like whether it's okay. math or prog it's like you know Billy Corgan said hipsters unite like this is the exact opposite this is all <laughs> the nerds unifying I mean math rock I think is you know punk it's like the punk version of prog basically yes. so there's definitely a lot of parallels there I don't know has, has anyone ever written about emo and prog is that I'm a, sure. I feel like that's got to be a deep dive. I'd be curious to see that. Um, I want to talk about a new album that's out today from Angel Olsen. It's called Big Time. And I have to say that this record surprised me a little bit because I've always appreciated Angel Olsen's work. I've written about her in the past. But I have to be honest that like her albums, while I enjoyed them, they never really hit me on a deeper level until now. Uh, this album is, I think, by far my favorite thing she's ever done. I like the record a lot. It's a very emotional record. I'm going to describe it in a way that will guarantee that Ian will never listen to this album. <laughs> I would I would say that it has a vibe that's similar to, to uh, Sea Change 
the Beck record, but I think it's better executed, certainly in like the the soundscapes that surround uh, her songs. Uh, this record was produced by a guy named Jonathan Wilson, who you may know as uh, Father John Misty's longtime producer. Uh, and this record has a similar vibe of like Southern California, Laurel Canyon, very kind of 60s and 70s. Uh, but there's more of like a country vibe to this record. It, it, it's almost like a psychedelic country record. Like if, uh, you know, Graham Parsons had lived a little bit longer, like he might have re- made a record that sounded like this in like 1975 or so. Uh, but there's a real, you know, emotional gut punch quality to this record. Uh, you know, the backstory, if you don't know it, is that Angel Olsen's parents both passed away within two months of each other. Uh, in I forget what year it was. It might have been 2020 or 2021, so fairly recently. So the record, it's definitely a grieving record, processing the loss, you know, very profound loss in her life. Uh, and it's paired again with music that I think is so gorgeous and it's so well produced. Again, lots of pedal steel guitar, just great sounding drums. Uh, and to me, it, I feel like some of her recent work has been a little overblown from a production standpoint. And then she, uh, I think overcorrected by making a very spare record from the same songs uh, that were on that, you know, very sort of orchestrated record that came out. I believe that was uh, All Mirrors. All Mirrors, yeah. From that record that came out, uh, that record All Mirrors, which is a good record again, but like I just feel like this album, for me anyway, is a breakthrough with Angel Olsen and it's probably going to send me back to listening to her older work. Sometimes it's like that with an artist who you like, but then you hear an album of theirs that you love and it makes you reappreciate other albums that you've listened to and maybe they haven't hit in quite the way that you would like them to. So again, um, the record's called Big Time. I like this record a lot. I think it's definitely one of the best albums that have come out so far here in 2022. So definitely check that one out. I, I don't think you'll listen to this record, Ian. Like, do, do you have any interest? I'm going to listen to it. Like, just because above all else, we serve the narrative. And if I, you know, it, Angel Olsen is like a constant uh, threat to be in the top 10 anytime she drops a record. So if nothing else for the sake of like, maybe this is the one that hits me. I don't know I'm about to do a lot of driving. Maybe it sounds good. I know she lives in Asheville, North Carolina, and I'm going to be driving through uh, the mid South a lot in the next. Couple oh man. Years. So maybe this, this is, is it. Maybe this yeah, is this, it. That, that sounds, that seems like the perfect setting uh, for this album. Uh, I envy you this. I would love <laughs> to take a trip to the South while listening to uh, big time, perfect environment for it. That about does it for this episode of IndieCast. Thank you all for listening. We'll be back with more news and reviews and hashing out trends next week. And if you're looking for more music recommendations, sign up for the Indie Mixtape Newsletter. You can go to uprocks.com backslash indie, and I recommend five albums per week, and we'll send it directly to your email box. <laughs>